welcome to the Better Being Podcast with Greg Stark and Ali Orr. This is a podcast that dives into the four pillars of performance, movement, mindset, nutrition, and mental health. We speak with experts, find real-life case studies and helpful anecdotes, and we do our best to learn more about optimizing human performance. All right, guys. Well, I'm really excited today. We are here with someone who I am really excited to talk about. Jen Brown, she's from Sparta Chicks, probably a self-proclaimed Sparta Chick, if mm-hmm. I can say that. Um, I'm really excited to have you here today, Jen. How are you going? I am good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you too. Well, we have a lot to get through. I am very interested if we could start. I just want to ask you about your law career because this is something that sort of pops up when I did a little bit of research about you and I really want to know how you started in law and then how you stopped in law. Oh, that's a really good question and going back hmm, a fair while now. Um so I started, I remember choosing law um, for the very unusual reason that it seemed like the hardest thing that I could do when oh, I was no. in high school. Yes, no, really. It was kind of that. And it was kind of, I think, to age myself, um, I remember being obsessed with LA Law, the TV show back in the <clears throat> 80s, 90s. <laughs> yep. um, and I... <laughs> And for some reason, I just fixated on law as, um, yeah, something that seemed unachievable. I didn't know any lawyers at the time. Like I'd never met a lawyer in my life up to that point, um, but it seemed cool. And it was. It was for, um, I was a lawyer for, oh, gosh, um, 11, 12 years before I ultimately left. Yeah. In terms of leaving law, um it was probably a couple of factors, not quite the sliding doors moment, but more like two two paths in life um, converged at a certain point. So there was on the side of law increasing dis- dissatisfaction with life as a lawyer um, in terms of the billable hours that lawyers operate under, um, you know, accounting for almost every minute of the day or having to account for almost every minute of the day. I love the work. I love the client. I am uber grateful that I studied law because it certainly does give you um, a unique perspective on the world and a unique way of thinking that my husband tells me I use when we're arguing, though he says I still argue like a lawyer. Um <laughs> So there was this increasing dissatisfaction that that was coupled with in my personal life. I had started running um, while I was a lawyer and I was constantly injured, constantly injured, just lots of little niggles, not necessarily overuse injuries to it. I just wasn't strong enough for the running that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I eventually found a Pilates instructor, a physio who was also a Pilates instructor, and that discovery kind of changed my life because I realized all the wrong things I had been doing in terms of my training and my injuries magically cleared up and and I got strong and um and I could see you know how frustrating those mistakes had been in my own life but I could also see how it was affecting um the running careers of my friends and and so I sort of was increasing my interest in human performance and um 
mindset as well at the same time as my increasing dissatisfaction with the law grew and eventually um, the two the two lions converged and um, I went to Nepal in 2007 for the first time just for a a four-week holiday and I remember during that trip just thinking I have to get out of law I can't go back to law Um, and that was sort of the the start of the the exit out of law. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack in there. I really <laughs> want to ask you before we talk about what happened after law. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about your endurance running and sort of what you got into because it sounds like you did some pretty amazing things. I have done some very cool things. Um, so I started. Really, I could think of myself as a trail runner. If you, if there is dirt under my feet, I'm a happy, happy camper. Um, so I started running, and um, I started running about 2004, if I had to guess. Um, since then, I've done. Oh gosh, uh, I've never done a marathon. I just skipped marathons and went straight for ultra marathons. So I've done four ultra marathons now. Um, a couple of 50s, uh, a 45, a 250s and a 100K. And then that sort of fed into my other interest, which is sort of outdoor outdoor adventures, mountaineering. Um, so I have hiked and climbed on, oh, I think I'm up to five of the continents now. Um, so, wow. yeah, just get me outdoors, blue sky over my head, dirt under my feet, and I am happiest. Okay, so... I'll tell you what I'm seeing is a theme here of someone who chose the hardest course they could, someone who (laughs) skips marathons. So now I'm thinking the Sparta chick thing is really in line with your branding. (laughs) Uh, It's funny you say that. It wasn't a deliberate decision to skip marathons. It was just that um, when I started getting into running, I had heard about this race called the Six Foot Track. Um, which okay. for those who don't know, the six foot track is across the Blue Mountains here in uh, outside Sydney. It's 45 kilometers. It, it goes from um, Katoomba across to Janolan Caves. And I just, I was just surrounded by, you've got to be careful about who you hang out with, I have realized, <laughs> because I was just surrounded by people who idolized this race. Like this race kind of has a bit of a myth and a legend around it. And um it just sounded really cool. And it was 45 kilometers. So I did the qualification race, which was 30 kilometers. And I just sort of stepped over 42 and kept going to 45. Okay. All right. I'll give it to you. It's it's an odd choice, but um, I'm sure you have plenty <laughs> of time to run marathons in the future. Oh, exactly. I And it's funny, I don't have any real to do road marathons. If I was going to do a road marathon, I would choose probably Paris um okay but that would be it like I it doesn't um I've realized one of the things I've realized both as an and a coach is that you kind of have to work out the type what motivates you and I see in endurance yes they're motivated by time so they're motivated by chasing faster times going back and doing the same race you know, year in, year out, trying to set new PBs, or they tend to be motivated by experiences. So they'll do one race, move on to a different experience, and I'm definitely in the latter category. 
All right, so we have the law and then we have the running. What happens after that? Give me a little rundown of how you got into Spider Chicks and sort of where you are now. Oh, gosh, okay. So um, dissatisfaction with the law led me into the world of personal training. Yep. Very sharp right turn, I know. <laughs> and um, I was working with and really specialising in helping athletes who ran. Um, so runners, triathletes, uh, even soccer players, um, anyone with running-related goals. And very early on, um, I had a female client who was a triathlete. I was only her PT at that stage. And she actually asked me to coach her in triathlon. And I had done triathlons by that stage. And I kind of thought about it and went, yeah, 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 I can do that. I can do that. And I kind of liken it to one of those moments when people see in you something you can't see in yourself. Because yeah. I started coaching her in triathlon and I just fell in love with it. Like I, I had participated in the sport already, but coaching actually really deepened my love and appreciation for the sport because it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And so my init initial PT business was actually called Spartan mm -hmm. PT, not named for Spartan races as we know them now, uh, simply named because I couldn't come up with a name. So I held a competition amongst my friends. I offered some gold class movie tickets and someone came up with a name and I thought it sounded good. And so um, after, not long after I started that, that one of my female clients actually just called herself a Sparta chick one day. And I was like, hmm, that's cool. That's cool. And it seemed to gather momentum more and more of my female clients were calling themselves Sparta chicks. So that's where the name kind of origins mm -hmm. came from. But aside from that, what I realized very early on in my coaching was that I was having very different conversations with my male clients as opposed to my female mm -hmm. clients. So my male clients were asking me technical questions, what I would call technical questions. You know, what equipment, gear should I use? What should I eat? How should I train? Um, all that sort of technical stuff. And there's a little asterisk to that story. We'll come back when we talk about imposter. Um, but my female clients, so much of my conversations with them were around you know, what if I fail? What if I can't do this? What if I'm not ready? What if I'm not good enough? What will people think when they see me? Um, you know, I, I don't deserve to be there. I don't belong. And so I came to realize that it was a really important that we have these conversations about these sorts of fear and self-doubt and B, that we had a safe place in which to do it. And so Sparta Chicks was essentially started as a spin-off business specifically for women in endurance sports um, and specifically around how we navigate the fear and the self-doubt and how you chase goals even though, you know, you're so scared that you want to hide sometimes. And that's really how Sparta Chicks came about. That's awesome. And is there some type of correlation between women that do endurance sports and this imposter syndrome sort of that we were talking about? Um, is that something that's really prevalent in that community? I That's a good question. I don't think it's any more prevalent in endurance sports than in society as a whole. I, if it is, if it does seem more prevalent, I, th I have a sneaking suspicion simply that it's because of the type of people that endurance sports tend to attract. And that is the classic, um, dare I say, A-type personality, 
high achiever, results driven, ambitious, driven, motivated type of people. And they are ten, they tend to be the people who experience imposter. Okay, interesting. And then if we dive a little bit further into imposter syndrome itself, I know that you're a bit of an expert in this area. Um, I'd love to know, for people who don't know what it is, can you give us a little bit of a background on what it really is and what it looks like? Yeah, sure. So the... F- if actually taking a step back, I'd, I want to I would like to address the name to start with because um, back in 1978, um, two researchers, Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Susan Imes, did this study of 150 high achieving women. They noticed this experience, this set of feelings, and they actually called it imposter phenomenon. Somewhere around the time that Sheryl Sandberg, um, the COO of Lean, of Facebook, wrote her book Lean In, she used imposter syndrome and it seems to have stuck. Right. The reason, yeah, strangely she quotes the original study in her book and yet uses syndrome. And the reason I just want to highlight that is because the imposter experience, the imposter complex, which is the phrase I use because phenomenon is too hard to say <laughs> and type as many times a day as I do, it's not a medical condition. It's not something you can go to the doctor and be diagnosed with. It's simply a set of feelings. And I fear sometimes, and, and based on some of the conversations I've had, people are a bit concerned that they've got this syndrome and that it's a bad thing. It's not really a bad thing. It's just a set of feelings that you have. So to what it looks like tends to be things like perfectionism, um, over overworking, you know, second guessing, triple checking documents. It's that sense many of us have of feeling that we're not ready or we're not good enough for an opportunity, um, that we don't deserve the success or the results that we've had. Um, any success or results that we have had are often the result of luck or good fortune or because someone liked us or because we managed to trick or fool some fool someone in into thinking we're someone that we're not and it's very much that sense of I'm just winging it at any minute now someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say we've 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 worked you out you're not as good as as we thought you were you know what are you doing here so it's very much that per- pervasive sense of essentially not good enough. Mm, that's very interesting. Something that I know we've all felt from time to time. I was just thinking then as you were sort of describing that, I feel like social media kind of perpetuates this idea that we can never really measure up to each other and and that's something that maybe um, gives us the idea that we really don't belong or that we can't be as good as everyone else. Is that something you see too? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's been, it's interesting because the studies, if you look at the studies around imposter, the percentage of people who report feeling this way is sort of slowly increasing over the years. Now, the part of that could simply be, be be because people are more aware of it now or and or people are now more willing to speak about how they're feeling. But I do very much get the sense that comparison and social media is underpinning a lot of that. It's that whole, you know, we we see our behind the scenes. We see them the mud and the sweat and the tears that go into our results. 
and yet we're comparing that to everybody else's highlight highlight reel that they post up on Facebook um, or Instagram. And so, yeah, I do think that social media and who we follow and how we how we interpret what we see and the stories that we tell ourselves about what we see as opposed to someone else, as opposed to, sorry, in someone else's life, as opposed to what's going on behind the scenes of our life is a big factor. Yeah. And interestingly, um, I had a conversation with someone yesterday who said something similar about the self-talk, the things we tell ourselves is never what we would tell anyone else. You know, we're always so much more critical of ourselves than we are of anyone else. Absolutely. Like you would never say half the things you think to yourself about yourself to your mother or your, you know, husband or your sister or your daughter or your son. Um, And I think that's, I think that's pretty telling. Like if you wouldn't say it to them, why do we say it to ourselves? Yeah, and do people get stuck in this loop? I feel like personally, you know, um, I feel this imposter complex, as you put it, sort of in lots and lots of aspects of my life. Um, do people generally feel that too in lots of different parts of their life, at work, at home, in their relationships, or is this more of a like workplace-centric situation? No, it's very much across different parts of life. It's the the tricky thing I think with imposter is it can be a bit of a shape shifter. So you can feel it or experience it in different ways in different parts of your life at different times. So some people will, for example, experience it highly at work, but in some other aspect of their life that's important to them, whether that's their relationships or their sport or some other hobby that they have. They're completely like grounded. They know what they they know what they're good at. They're they're happy. They're content. They ha- don't struggle with that sense of feeling like a fraud or that they're not. They're just winging. They're just winging it. Um, likewise, there can be people who are you know at work. Now I know what I do. I know what I'm good at. Yet they really struggle with it in their relationships or in their sport. And it can switch between the two. So it's definitely not isolated to um, one area of life. If there's one area of life I hear a lot, for example, when it comes to personal life, it's first-time parents because, you know, for many that is ulti- that ultimately feels like an experience of winging it because you're bringing this, this baby home for the first time and you've got no, like you, if you haven't raised a child before, you've got no real idea of what it's like. Um, and, uh, it's yeah, it's very interesting to see the different areas of life in which people can feel this way. Yeah, that's really interesting. As someone who has never had a child, I assume that the minute I have a baby, I'll all of a sudden just be like, oh, I know what to do now, which I guess is not, not the case, <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm in the same situation, never had a baby, but I would, I could certainly, you know, and I have not been exposed to a lot of kids. Like we don't have young kids in our family. So I would have no, like no freaking idea what I'm doing and I think too you know there's a lot of that's coupled with it's not just you that you have to worry about you know your for mothers I've spoken to say to me like I'm just scared I'm gonna stuff up this kid um you know my I'm I'm not a good parent and because I'm not a good parent I'm gonna screw up this kid for life and I that's enormous pressure I'm gonna say that's a lot of pressure you can't be that hard on yourself Mm. you can't be and yet yeah. yeah, and 
that sort of brings me to the next part is how do you then rehab yourself from being stuck in this imposter syndrome? <laughs> how do you change your uh, frame of thinking so that you start thinking a little bit more positively about how you are and how well you're doing? Mm. I think the key, I think there's two, two, two stages to that. The first is I don't think confidence is the solution to the imposter I think objectivity is because all these stories that we tell ourselves about how good or bad we are they're not objective they're very subjective Mm -hmm. and they are influenced by a lifetime of experiences so the first step if if the first step really is to become aware because very often we're sometimes not aware of the stories that we're telling ourselves or we think to ourselves, yeah, but I know who I am and I like I know the truth um, about what I'm not good at. You don't know the truth. You know your truth. You know your version of the truth. Um, and part of that imposter is that we don't believe what people say about us. We don't have the objectivity to actually trust what people say about us. So the first phase that I work with in clients is really around awareness. Like what are those situations that in which, sorry, what are those situations in which you experience the imposter? What are the triggers that send you into the imposter spiral? So it might be a race. It might be some, you know, it might be a certain competitor that really um, triggers you. It might be a situation. It might be a meeting with domineering stakeholders at work. It might be um, receiving difficult feedback from a boss or a colleague. Um, All of us have these situations in which we are most or more likely to feel this way. So the first step is really about developing awareness to spot those, to recognise those situations and our patterns and habits that we have. So when when we're in that situation and the domineering stakeholder is talking over us in our meeting, you know, what pattern do we slip into? What spiral, what thought spiral do we slip into? Okay. And then? (laughs) (laughs) Then... The next stages are really around the tools and, and tactics that you can use to shortcut or circuit break your spiral, essentially. This is why I think there's no five-step solution to the imposter. Unfortunately, yeah. there's no one-size-fits-all five-step solution. It's why all those articles that if you do read an article on the imposter, they're always full of five tactics. But the reality is... Not only does the imposter, as I said before, show up differently in different ways at different times and in different parts of your life, how it shows up for you will be very different from how it shows up for me, even in that same situation. So the second phase is really around A, questioning the stories that you tell yourself about yourself, B, Um, gathering and trusting the feedback that you get from others. Like if your boss says you're doing a good job, believe them. (laughs) Um, Why is that so hard to do? (laughs) I know it is, isn't it? Um, uh, So other things include, you know, the tactics and strategies that you can use, for example, in the situation. 
Um, so it might be a mantra. It might be a question you ask. It might be, you know, it might even be something like a, a, a belly breath or a momentary pause, just trying to gather yourself before you respond to a situation. Mm-hmm. That's, it's quite an experimental phase because as I said, what works for me won't work for you. And it's, you almost have to find your own recipe um, to your situation. Yeah. Okay. So um, tell me if this is the same thing, but I have a friend um, who can't accept compliments and recently had a bit of a um, intervention, a friend intervention and sat them down and said, when we give you a compliment, instead of immediately thinking we're paying you out, you can just say, thanks. And uh, my friend then struggles really hard just to say thank you just stops and has this frozen moment of oh oh thanks what do I do and, you know and is this a similar sort of thing like trying to rewire that just to be okay with a compliment is that sort of what you're talking about absolutely it's it's one of the strat one of the tactics and strategies is around uh compliments and feedback um And it's interesting, it's both rewiring the story that you tell yourself about it. So your friend or a woman that I speak with might say, oh, but they're just saying that because they like me or they're just saying that because they don't want to hurt my feelings. So part of it is recognising what that story is that you're telling yourself about it. And part of it is breaking the habit of saying thanks but. Because that's what we do. We uh, yeah. all say, oh, thanks, but thanks, but, you know, this old thing has been in the back of the cupboard for ages, or thanks, but, you know, it was nothing, it was really easy to me, or, you know, all that sort of those ways that we diminish compliments or praise. Um, so it is one of the tactics that I often recommend to people is just thank you is a complete sentence. So say thank you, full stop, close your mouth. <laughs> stop speaking and it does get easier with practice when you combine those two sort of strategies together but that thing about dismissing compliments and dismissing praise is part of the imposter it is one of the the key components I think of of this imposter complex yeah very interesting and also a lot of these examples I don't know if it's because both you and I are women but a lot of these examples I hear women say all the time and I don't hear many men say oh you know this old thing I just picked this up for five dollars at Kmart you know that's not a thing that I hear men say and I'm not trying to be um you know biased to gender here but I really don't think they say stuff like that is that a thing that you notice as well um overtly yes I agree um I think there's a few a few things I'd add to that one is that I don't think generalising broadly men have been, men have not been conditioned to dismiss praise. Mm -hmm. A lot of women I speak with, we have been conditioned, you know, we're taught from a young age to to downplay achievements and to to dismiss praise, you know, not to get too big for our boots. So I think part of that is that men just um, don't often downplay or they're not taught to downplay achievements they're taught to quite the opposite in fact for many men the second thing is just because they're not talking about it doesn't mean they're not experiencing yeah and this actually this actually goes back to when I was telling you the story about the the difference in the conversations between my male clients and my female clients 
at the time, my male clients were not saying anything of the sort. But what's been really interesting to me is that since I started speaking and writing about the imposter, I have had so many conversations with men, you know, colleagues or acquaintances who have like sidled up to me at a at a social gathering and very quietly said to me, hey, Jen, you know that article that you wrote about the imposter the other day or the podcast you were talking about it? I get that too. And I say, okay, that's, thank you for telling me. And it's, um, it's amazing how often that happens. Um, so it's definitely, um, it's definitely, I think, a common experience. The research certainly shows that men and women experience it almost as much as one another. Um, and certainly the anecdotal um, conversations I've had would back that up. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, it's something that I sort of didn't really think about. They probably just experience it in different domains and in different ways, exactly like what you were saying. The experience is different from one person to another, right? Yeah, and I think the response to it is different. So if I had to generalise very broadly, I would say that um, the the experience, the thoughts, the feelings are common and how we respond to that is the difference. Um, Brene Brown talks about the armour that we put up to protect ourselves. I think our armour um, can be very different from men to women. So women, I, if I had to generalise, I would say women tend to play small, take up mm. less space, diminish, downplay achievements, um, you know, want to appear perfect, want to appear like the superwoman and, um, yeah, just play small, I think is the best way to put it. For many men, I think we've all been in that situation where the opposite is true. We've seen men who it's almost like a false sense of confidence, like a bravado or a facade, Mm. Um, people who are overly confident. Um, I can certainly remember many encounters in life uh, as a lawyer with people who probably fit into that category. But I just think our our defense mechanism, our response to our feelings is different. And that comes back to the tactics that we use and why everyone's response or everyone's approach or how we navigate it will end up different. Yeah, cool. And something that just popped into my head too, when you were sort of explaining that type of person, um, you know, we always get told fake it till you make it. Is that a legitimate tactic here in that type of scenario? Oh, look, I am actually not a fan of fake it till you make it. It seems a little cliche, doesn't it? It does. And I think there are some women who then in, if you, if you're knowingly faking it, then doesn't it just prove that your imposter is right? Oh, that's okay. Yep. (laughs) It almost becomes evidence or proof of what you think. Um, So it can kind of become this self-fulfilling prophecy. I tend to prefer um, a act as if as a as a motto instead. Slight difference, but in terms of um, bringing to the surface and showing who you are, your natural strengths, your natural um, tendencies. You know what makes you good at who you are. It's almost you almost have to be vulnerable in order to do it. I think, but it. It's, um, yeah, fake it till you make it is kind of 
I can see I can see why the idea appeals to people, but I have had so many conversations with women over the years for whom it's actually become proof of their inadequacy that I that I tend to rally against it. Yeah, that's very interesting and helpful too because I hear that so often. But you're right, act as if this thing seems a little bit more yeah. constructive, perhaps. Mm. All right, Jen. Um, I would like to, if we can, quickly, I'd like to know your personal experience with imposter syndrome and how you sort of navigated that and where you are now. And if it's still something that you experience, like do you have active tips to deal with that that you, like just personal stuff for you? Oh, God, how long have we got? (laughs) (laughs) I, um, so imposter, yes, constantly all the time and it changes I think is the best way to describe it um if I had to um if I had to think about some of the situations in which I've experienced it over the years they would be things like um, when I first launched the podcast actually um I didn't I had the idea and I sat on it for 12 months because I didn't think I was good enough to do it. I didn't think I had the skills or the qualifications or the experience to do it. Like I was like, who am I to launch a podcast? Um, I had never interviewed anyone in my life. And then um, a very wise friend pointed out to me that she said to me, Jen, you're a lawyer, right? And I was like, yeah. And she said, didn't you just ask people questions for a living? Isn't that what lawyers do? And um, she had a point. She was right. And so for me, I mean, I think that's a classic example, A, of believing what people say about you and trusting the judgments of others. She held a mirror up to me and could and showed me a skill set, a strength that I had that I didn't realise that I had. So I think that's a, a good example um one that I one situation that's impossible to reverse now but stays um strong in my memory is that at university when I was studying law I studied international law and um one day the lecturer came into the room with a handful of paper and mentioned that there were scholarships to study international law at New York University um if anyone was interested blah 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 and she went on with the lecture and um on the, I, as the lecture ended, I was walking out of the room and she called me over and she handed me one and she said, Jen, you should apply for this. And I loved international law. I did exceptionally well in the unit and I took one of the bits of paper just because I was being polite, um, if I'm honest, and I suddenly slipped into, oh, don't be ridiculous, who am I to you know, someone like me, someone from my background, someone who studies at the university I study at, someone who gets the marks at, don't be ridiculous, I couldn't possibly. And it's funny, that that's 20 plus years ago now and it was only a few years ago in my own um, experience of understanding the imposter that I suddenly had this light bulb moment and thought, oh, my God, that was the imposter. That was the imposter coming through. Um, so that's one in hindsight. Well, let's face it, if I had gone down that path, you and I would not be sitting here having this conversation today. Um, but that's one that's very strong for me. Um, and even recently, you know, going back to what I was saying about being objective, 
I was signing up for an online uh, swim coaching program and it forced and I had to choose, you know, was I beginner, intermediate or advanced? And I went to click intermediate. I kind of went, oh, advanced. No, I'm not. I'm only intermediate. Intermediate was something like confident but like to improve and advanced was I'm an experienced swimmer. So my instinct was, oh, no, only intermediate, only intermediate. And then I, I paused for a moment. I'm glad I did. And I went, actually, Jed, you've done three-kilometre ocean swims. You've trained for a five-kilometre ocean swim. You've swum five kilometres. I think you can probably tick the advanced category. Um, so that was a moment where I really had to stop myself in the moment and, and try and find some objectivity in the situation, you know, to look at the objective evidence, the facts, to decide which of those categories I slip into. So there's some of the situations in my life and how, interestingly, how the tactics have um, have unfolded. Yeah, I really like that um, story you said about being at uni and how strongly you felt about that in the moment that it still sticks with you. I know. I find that very, very interesting and sort of you know, when you're at uni and when you're young, everyone tells you every opportunity, just take every opportunity that comes your way. And isn't it funny that we think that that doesn't apply to us? Yeah. <laughs> like I grew up and it's, I think one of the conversations I often have with women is why do I feel this way? Like I grew up believing or being told I could do anything that I wanted, that I set my mind to. And I certainly was too. So to look in hindsight and suddenly go, why didn't, I didn't even... I didn't even contemplate applying for it. Like my my imposter kicked in so suddenly and so strongly, I completely dismissed the idea of even trying to do it. Um, and I think it's probably that um, uh, disappointment might not be quite the right word, but it's that... Um, yeah, disappointment in hindsight that I didn't even give myself permission to try um, that has stayed with me. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, I, and you can't beat yourself up about that now, can you? No, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Though it's funny, every time I see uh, like a, it's funny that I can still see, I can still see the form in my mind 20, oh, it's going to be over 20 years later, wow. honestly. Um, I, and it had the photo. You probably would have seen the shot of outside the United Nations in New York with the, all the flags, the country's mm-hmm. flags lined up. That was the banner photo. And so any time now that I see talk of the United Nations, um, especially in New York, I just I still think of that moment. Wow. That is seriously very, very powerful, the fact that that's still mm. so solid in your mind. Oh, guys, take your opportunities and run with them. <laughs> yes please please (laughs) who knows I will probably you know to complete the circle one day I will probably have to go and study something at New York University just to uh just to complete the circle and tick the box but um yeah we'll see I love that for you the one that got away was a university course that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) I I mean seriously it's um it's pretty it's pretty funny in hindsight that all the things yeah um, it was that, and it was the subject I got the best results out in my entire um, university degree. So, yeah, yeah, funny. I love as well that the reason why this probably sticks with you so much is probably because you know that you are capable and you were capable. Mm. So, anyway, 
Anyway, well, well, we're here now. (laughs) (laughs) That's another lie. All right. So before we wrap this up, I'm going to throw some quick fire questions at you, which we do for all of our guests. Okay. The very first question I have is if you could change someone's mind about something, what would it be? That they are capable of more than they can possibly ever imagine. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) Question number two, what are you really excited about right now? The Olympic Games. Oh, yeah. Um, I love, love, love the Olympic Games and I love, 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 love the fact that they're on in our time zone, so that's very exciting. (laughs) Um, And I'm very excited about the glass of wine I'm going to have tonight if I'm being honest. As someone currently doing Dry July, enjoy that glass (gasps) of wine. Oh, I've forgotten. I'm sorry. (laughs) I will. I'll I'll have a sip for you. Thank you. Next question. Do you have a book, podcast or some resource that you always recommend? Oh my gosh, I have so, so many. I'm a bit of, uh, no, I am a book nerd. I love books. Um, If people are particularly interested in this topic of the imposter, I would suggest uh, the book Not Just Lucky by Jamila Risby. She's a um, journalist here in Australia and it's a fantastic, very practical, pragmatic book in terms of dealing with with imposter. and oh, I could I, I could talk for an hour just on book recommendations. So don't start me. Do you have a podcast that people should listen to? I I would always recommend Brene Brown's Unlocking Us. Yeah. Um, I think because she has such a broad array of um, guests, and. I think she does a really good job of expanding your thinking, expanding how you see the world in a very safe way. Like it's not confronting. She doesn't beat you over the head for feeling or thinking the wrong thing. Um, But she certainly expands my view of me, myself, my role in the world, the the world as a whole, um, and what's, what's capable, what's possible. Yeah, it's awesome. I really love Brene Brown as well. And a few things that you spoke about today made me remember oh yeah I should get back into Brene Brown (laughs) yeah yeah I I'm a fan (laughs) I'm a big fan of her work all right next question do you have a health hack or sort of something you wish you did earlier relating to health and well-being you probably have a few of these too yeah that's actually a hard question to answer health hack um it's a more it's more a well-being hack but it's about looking after my future self mm-hmm. so I use this phrase so often my husband almost you know makes fun of me but it's about you know doing the little things today that make tomorrow easier that take the stress off tomorrow yeah um, because I find when we do those things like it might be as simple as you know at night one of my one of my hacks is actually you know reset the coffee machine essentially you know empty the coffee grinds and the water and re-top the water um because I feel a I feel calm it makes me feel calm and organized but it also means I save myself time and energy and frustration the day after Uh, and anything we can do to look after ourselves in the future I think is a good a good thing yes agree I once had someone tell me that you should do that because you're robbing time from tomorrow if you don't do it in the immediate moment. And I found that really, really profound. And I always think about that, like, oh, tomorrow I might be busy, so I better do it now. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, like I do it, I 
I live by the philosophy and then whenever I let go of that philosophy, it comes back and bites me on the butt. Like I'll be rushing between phone calls or Zoom calls or something to get a coffee and then the coffee machine will go, change the filter. And I'll be <laughs> annoyed at the coffee machine and myself for not looking after it the night before. So, yeah. And last question, somebody alive that you could have over for dinner and they would answer all your questions, who would it be and why? <gasps> alive. Oh, gosh. Um, Brene Brown would have to be up the top of the list. Um, who else? Who else? Michelle Obama. Yeah. Um, Madeleine Albright, former US Secretary of State. I think she'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton. Um, Barack Obama. I'm thinking this um, sounds like a very interesting room if you had them all there together. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? <laughs> One person who is not alive who I would love to have at that table would be um, Amelia Earhart. Oh. I just think what she did in her lifetime at that time was just extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, she'd be on the list too. That's awesome. I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Jen, so tell me, where can people find you and what are the sort of best channels that they can follow what you're up to? Thank you. So the best places to find me for the endurance sport side of me and my work would be at spartachicks.com. For the rest of my world, especially around the imposter complex, imposter syndrome, you can find me at www.spartagen.com. S-P-A-R-T-A-J-E-N.com. Um, and everywhere else, I'm pretty much Sparta Gen on all the socials and Instagram is probably where I'm most active. I love Instagram. So you can find me there too. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, Jen. I'm really, really glad to have you on our podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've loved it. No worries. Thanks for listening to the Better Being Podcast. If you want to learn more, follow us on social media at BetterBeingPT on Instagram and as BetterBeing on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you like what you heard, drop us a review. And until next time, stay well.